0: an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argore, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show Into our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And yes, indeed, um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, our audience today. Um, I welcome you to another uh, brand new uh, podcast. Uh, And uh, I'm very excited that we have a a, uh, brand new guest that we have not featured before and a very uh, fascinating case with. Multiple layers, and I will introduce them in just one minute, uh, but I do want to make uh, one or two very brief introductions um, want to uh, or announcements rather want to let people know that who are in the Connecticut Massachusetts area that I will be in the uh, uh, Buckland Hills. Mal Barnes & Noble um, doing a book shining um, next Saturday on January 14th. So if you're in the area and you want to come in and just say hello and and uh, have a photo op, maybe buy a book, I really do welcome you. The other announcement I'd like to make, too, is to remind people that the Q Center for Missing Persons has their annual conference coming up um, in just a couple of months here, starting on March 17th to the 19th, and we do very much welcome your participation, so go to ncmissingpersons.org uh, for all that information. It's a wonderful conference. So without, and just want to welcome uh, Delilah Jones, my co-host, the, the, my PR manager, who's the head of the Best little PR Social Media Marketing Company in the Southeast. Good morning, Delilah.
1: Well, oh, good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you know, once again, I think listeners are going to be fascinated with the guest that we have today and the cases that surround his appearance here. Um, you know, 30 years is way too long to wait for justice, and hopefully by some of the information that we are going to put out there today, um, maybe it will help. Yeah, and
0: it, it, it will help in terms of maybe... Other people listening, calling in, but it also will help other families uh, in terms of a sense of hope because Bill Thomas, had, he and he and the other families and all of his connections have really um, uh, made 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 so much progress relative to this very long history. And it is a fascinating story. I've had the the pleasure to talk to him in a detailed fashion um, over the last few weeks, and um, the, I just think he's a great guy. So. Instead of talking about him, let's talk with him. Um, Bill Thomas, who is um, by trade he's a labor union executive in the LA area, but he has taken on the role of kind of spearheading this whole investigation about the uh, state of Virginia Colonial uh, Parkway murders uh, because he, and he isn't very invested because his his sister Kathleen Woods was was murdered there. And um, Bill, we we so welcome you to Shattered Lives. Welcome to our show today. Thank you for being with us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. It's great to be here. And just before we went on air, in case we make a reference to it, Delilah and I just figured out that we had met, it's about six or six and a half years ago originally. And so it's it's, um, great, great to be here and great to reconnect with Delilah as well.
1: Well thank you. Yep. It's 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 great on my end as well, Bill. Yeah. It's a small world, isn't it?
0: It's a large it, world world with a small world.
2: <laughs> it's both, I think.
0: Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Well, Bill, uh we're not <clears throat> we're not gonna try to cover the entire landscape of every aspect because we just can't do it in one hour. And we just kind of um Planted the seed that maybe we can continue this, but we will give it you know we will give it a try um we kind of have a game plan here, so let's kind of jump in um, with respect to uh I know that with your 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 other job the hat that you wear you 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 work with a lot of people and maybe um, in terms of working with uh, negotiating labor contracts and all of that, you are very well-primed for working with numbers of people and networking with others and trying to um, find out information. Do you feel like your your two lives have kind of combined here in good ways to be able to to take on this massive um, assignment on, on behalf of crime victims?
2: yeah they probably have, and it's a good point i um i, I didn't think that necessarily when I got uh, most heavily involved um in the case of the colonial park murders case uh seven years ago but it, what you're saying actually does make a lot of sense in terms of working with people and a lot of times in 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 the the labor movement we talk about organizing that is getting your members involved um in, in, uh, in their contracts or in, in the negotiation process or sometimes in the in the political process, if there's an issue that's before um, a, a particular group of members. So I think a lot of those those skills that uh, I would use as a uh, executive director of a labor union make a lot of sense. And the truth is I think anyone can use their background, whether you know whether they're a business person or or uh, they do what I do or or what have you, everybody starts with some um, skills and innate ability that they can put to work. It has worked well for me over these last seven years yeah well we
0: we never asked for this job at some time. There's just you know a calling in our heart that we do this and
2: and and we do
0: it so um you know i just wondering to start out with before we get into sort of nitty gritty do you see i mean i i i can see just looking in from the outside in my experience what would be the main differences in working with say that it was just your sister's case but you have you know eight you know eight people you know multiple couples here i kind of harken back to the case of the Long Island serial killer and that kind of thing. What, what are the differences w- with regard to approach that maybe you've learned that you, you have to approach this very differently in working with all of these families versus just representing your, sister, your sister's case?
2: Well, it gets a lot more complicated when you've got, in, in, in our situation, you have four double homicides of couples, and I know we'll get into a little bit of, the, of an overview. Uh, yeah. But there, but there, there are um, there are multiple jurisdictions involved, and it's funny, I'm just starting to watch um, some of the coverage on A&E of the Long Island serial killer case, which is a fascinating and very sad uh, case of multiple murder as well but it, when you have the cross jurisdictional issues in other words you have multiple law enforcement agencies uh, involved uh, that that creates all kinds of complications and we can kind of touch on that then you've got the the, the passage of, of 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 time in our case we have four double homicides approximately over a three-year period in multiple uh, cities and towns in, in Virginia, and mm-hmm. then, then, then you add in the, you've got eight different uh, families, each of whom have lost a loved one. And, of course, I think it's natural. I'm going to talk a little bit more about, about Kathy and her girlfriend Becky because uh-huh. that's why I come to this conversation, that that's not meant to diminish any of the other young people that were lost I just know more about Kathy and Becky. I'll talk about all, all, all eight of the young people. But then, so then, but then you have the complications of eight families, different perspectives, um, different points of view. Some people are, are in the, uh, the camp of thinking that the, the four double homicides are related in the Colonial Parkway murders. There are other people, and they, with just the same degree of sincerity, that honestly believe that the four double homicides in the colonial park murders are not necessarily related. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you, and, and then you throw in the, the level of engagement that different families feel. And one of the things I've come to learn is that everyone has to go through this process of loss in his or her own way. And so, for example, at different times, different family members have been more or less engaged in the process. And this is difficult. It's sometimes painful. Um, it could be a really heavy burden. And there are times when family members have had to put it down, if you know what I mean, put it aside. and Kind move of step on back. With,
0: from, right.
2: Yeah, and move on with their lives. It's, and it's a very natural thing. And you you have to just sort of delicately... Uh, probe a bit to find out where someone is in terms of do you want more participation or would you like to leave us to leave you alone? Does is it is having this conversation about the latest developments in the Colonial Parkway case is that helping your uh, your life or is it is it giving you nightmares? Literally giving you nightmares. So you have to be very respectful of other. Uh, people's points of view and their willingness to participate um, in, in the process. In, in this, by the way, the, this dynamic happens even within my own family where, you know, uh, with my father and my brothers, my mom has passed away. Uh, it, 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 how much are they willing to, 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 to be involved, even how much are they willing to hear Never right. mind it, as you as you said a minute ago, Donna. Just that you know the nitty gritty, which of course I try to try to avoid as much as possible. Is inevitable for certainly for investigators um, and even family members. Sadly, you end up knowing a lot of uh, things that you'd probably rather not know. So it's a right. Real so you're carrying a big dynamic. burden.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I can so relate in our situation too because. Every person in my family is different in terms of their talents level level of involvement. So when you're dealing with all these families simultaneously, it's like you're having to check in and say, okay, where are you at with this right now? And I have information to share. Would you like to know it? So it's very sensitive. It's very delicate. You know, um, so I don't know. I just commend you for, you know, taking this on because it is – it's very very difficult but um and we all realize that first and foremost, you want to see justice for your sister um and her partner um but again, you're kind of representing a whole lot of other people, so it is you know it is incredibly complex. Why don't we give for the benefit of listeners who've never? heard the story, or even know anything about that area of Virginia and how culturally that, you know, Colonial Parkway is looked upon. What what happened as an overview? And then maybe we can talk about Kathy, okay?
2: Okay, great. I'll give you an overview. One of my challenges is if I get too detailed, tell me to tap the brakes. Okay. Let me try to give you the, the, the brief overview. With the Colonial Parkway murders, what we have, are, are uh, uh, the murder of eight young people, four couples, approximately from, in a period from 1986 to 1989. So it's actually a three-year period. Sometimes we refer to it as a four-year period, but if you actually look at a calendar from beginning to end, we're looking at three years. So four young couples were murdered um, over a three-year period from 1986 to 1989. Um, in, in all of the examples, this, the, these occurred in and around the Colonial Parkway in Virginia. For those of the listeners that are familiar with Colonial Williamsburg and that beautiful historic area, um, there's this 23-mile-long parkway, which is the Colonial Parkway, which stretches along two rivers and connects Jamestown, which is one historical site, to Yorktown, another, and it's this beautiful ribbon of land that runs along these two um, two parkways, uh, two rivers, excuse me. And it's it's designed to look like an old-fashioned highway, almost like from the forties. Uh, very limited access. In other words, there's no commercial um, businesses at all along this beautiful ribbon mm-hmm. of parkland. It's run by the National Park Service, and it, it is a really a special. Beautiful site. During the day, it's a place that's known for obviously tourists driving up and down the parkway going to these historic sites. And there are beautiful pull-offs and places to go uh, swimming and fishing and uh picnic, you know, or- yeah, picnic, toss a frisbee, that kind of thing. That's during the day. At night, the parkway, which has no lights on it whatsoever. Is actually quite dark and kind of isolated. It's patrolled by the National Park Service, uh, by National Park Service rangers driving up and down the parkway in in cop cars, um, and now they use SUVs. Um, but you've got to be clear on something: it's 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 kind of lonesome out there, and it's been a it's a place that local folks who grew up in in the Norfolk area, Virginia, Norfolk, Williamsburg. That it was a place because it was very lightly controlled and kind of isolated. It would be a place where people might go to party back when they were in high school or college, uh, you know, that, that age range. Um, and mm-hmm. it would also be a place that couples would go to, to be alone. And here's where we find um, the colonial Parkway murders beginning to, to develop. Two of the four, murders of these young couples took place, they believe, on the Colonial Parkway. Two of the other murders actually took place in roughly a, about a half an hour in either direction from the Colonial Parkway. But, but because they took place around the same time, the, the, the theory is that these murders are related. So two of the murders happened on the Colonial Parkway, Another murder took place at the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge, which, as I said, is about maybe a half an hour away. And then the, the final murder took place um, up on Interstate 64, which is more of a traditional highway, um, about a half an hour in the other direction up in New Kent County. So mm-hmm. four couples. In, in all of these situations, though, the, the four young couples are all in parking situations, in other words, places where people might go to be romantic. Um, the first couple uh, is October 1986. That's my uh, younger sister, Kathy Thomas, who was 27 at that time, and her girlfriend, who was a senior at William & Mary, which is the college that she's quite nearby in Williamsburg. Uh, her name is Rebecca Andowski, and they, she was 21 years old. So their bodies were found in October. October 1986. Mm-hmm.
0: At what point was the, she in her military career, Bill? I was she. Um, you know, what what was she doing at that point? Her girlfriend was had what one more year of college, but what was did she plan yes. on having a big career after that?
2: Well, my sister Kathy was a graduate of the United States Naval Academy uh, class of okay. 1981. So Kathy yep. was in the second class with women in it. This is back when the women were first admitted to the service academies. And then Kathy had been, (laughs) had gone to Annapolis for four years, graduated in 81. She was in the Navy as a Naval officer for five years. You're obligated to, if you do four years at Annapolis, you're obligated for five. She did five years. She found ultimately the opportunities for women were too limited, um, especially at that time. Um, and so she decided she was going to get out of the service. So she left the service in June 1986. She was working as a stockbroker for um, uh, a company in Virginia Beach, still living in the area, although she was thinking about heading off to graduate school the following year and was beginning to explore, uh, you know, what her what her options might be. So okay. she probably would, would have left. The, uh, the Williamsburg area. And then I uh, her girlfriend, her girlfriend they've been dating for six months. Um, Becky Dowski was a senior at William and Mary and was hoping to graduate. Uh, I'm not certain. She was a transfer student, so I'm not certain if she would have graduated that June or perhaps the following December.
0: I see. Um, okay. I'm sorry to interrupt so, me. Go ahead.
2: No, 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 not at all. So um, the second couple, it's almost a year later, almost to the day, September 22nd, 1987, a second couple is found. Uh, now we move off the Colonial Parkway. Um, they have a young guy, David Nobling, and a much younger girl. Her name is Robin Edwards. And they're found shot to death. Now, Kathy and Becky have been killed u- using Knives and rope And there been an attempted to set their car on fire The second murder um, David Noble and Robin Edwards Are found shot to death They're also in a place Where uh, At least his, his car Which is a pickup truck David's pickup truck is actually found um, at a, In a parking area Which is next to the James River Bridge Which is a really big bridge that stretches across, you know, I think it's four miles, four and a half miles long, across the James River. <clears throat> David's truck was found next to the James River Bridge at this parking lot, which is a, a sort of a very pretty, actually, dirt parking area with a next to the wildlife refuge. A little bit of a sketchy reputation. I'm talking about the parking area now. It's a place that couples went sometimes to have sex, and it was also a place you might do a low-level drug deal, um, at least by reputation. I'm not saying that's what ha- was happening here, mm-hmm. but I'm just trying to give you, your listeners a sense of w- what we're talking about. Now, right. their their bodies were missing, and over the next couple of days, search parties found the two bodies. They were in the water, um, and both both David and and Robin had been shot. And sadly, David's father actually was one of the people that discovered um, his son's body. And the, the, wow. think, the, the thinking was, is that the, based on the, on the wounds and so on, is that David and, and Robin were approached and that at some point, perhaps while being marched down to the water or something like that, um, David may have made a run for it. He was shot in the shoulder. Um, which probably you know would have taken him down, and then then he was killed with a shot to the head, and then Robin Edwards um, was also shot shot in the head. Robin was quite young; she was 14 years old. Um, and it's interesting to note, David and Robin aren't really a couple. Um, they had met that day, and um, so they might have been fooling around. They might not have. We're not 100% certain. But How not, old was he? He's, he was 20 at the time of his death, and Robin was 14. But it's mm-hmm. interesting. We often say couple here, and one of the things that when you're looking for patterns, interestingly, as, as I walk you through this, Kathy and Becky, the first couple, are actually the only couple that's really a couple.
0: That others, oh, Okay, I was going to ask you about that. Mm-hmm.
2: The, the others are, are not. And you'll, you'll begin to see a little bit of a pattern. And I'll point out a few other patterns that, that uh, investigators have, point, have, have pointed out or that, that i thought about or other family members. So that's September 1987. Then we move to the following spring, April 1988. Now we're back on the Colonial Parkway, and uh, 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 two people are out on a first date, um, their names are uh, Cassandra Haley and Keith Call. His full name is Richard Keith Call. His father's also Richard. He goes by his middle name. Um, they are both college students at uh, what is now called Christopher Newport University. Um, also, both quite young. They're about 20 ish um, at the time of their deaths. Um, they're both students at Christopher Newport University. They're on a first date. Keith had broken up with another girl a few weeks before, a long high school girlfriend. Now he's a freshman in college, um, so he's kind of upset about that, but maybe beginning to move on with his life. Um, he ends up taking out this very strikingly pretty young woman, Cassandra Haley, um, on a first date. They were at a party at the Apartments that are no longer there in the area called University Square, this is in Newport News Virginia um, and by all accounts, the two of them on this first date don't seem particularly all that into each other. They spend most of the night separate at this party from uh, talking to people that were there that night uh, I mean they're you know they're getting along, but they just didn't seem
0: they didn't all that quit fun. or something, huh.
2: Yeah, all, they didn't seem that, all that focused on one another is the way uh, people had characterized it. He ended up talking to some of his friends. She ended up talking to some of her friends. Now, they have this commitment. I think he's supposed to get her back by 2 a.m. I'm saying this off the top of my head, but he, he was supposed to get her back by a certain time, and I sort of laughed because I could picture myself, you know, at that age, you know, telling my mom and dad I'd be in by two, and, and it's, so it's that kind of thing. Now, they leave the party, and they're driving in his uh, Toyota Celica, and basically what happens is they disappear. They are never heard from again. Technically, uh, Keith and Cassandra are are missing people, but now they've been gone since 1988, so the assumption is is that they're dead. They're
0: um, murdered, Keith, yeah.
2: Right. Keith's car is found. Now we're back on the Colonial Parkway. It's found a mile or so away from where Kathy and Becky's Honda had been found um, at another one of these very pretty little pull-offs along the Colonial Parkway next to the river. Keith's car is found. Um, there's, there's some articles of clothing inside, um, and, uh, you know, there were, there were some sort of oddball theories that they might have gone skinny dipping, but when you start adding up things like it's April, it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> it was supposed to be a cool, a, a, a cold, misty night that night. They're on a first date.
0: Doesn't make I don't sense, think they.
2: Yeah, I don't think they went skinny dipping. I don't think they went swimming. Now, to be fair, the car is on this little pull-off, which is a little bit of a bluff, looking down on on. Um, on the river, uh, you know it, 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 I can understand it so after a extensive searching, they dragged the river, they searched there's all these beautiful marshy areas nearby they they uh, searched uh, you know up and down, never found uh, Keith and cassandra and so wow. the assumption was was that the that, you know, they're, they're gone. They've never, they've never been found. They've never, they've never turned up. Um, fourth couple, now we're back to the fall again. So three of the four double homicides occur within about a four-week window. Now we're back to October 19, 1989. Um, uh, a couple goes missing While driving uh, on I-64, their names are Daniel Lauer, uh, Daniel's 21, and Anna Maria Phelps, um, who's 18. Now, Daniel and Anna Maria aren't really a couple either. Anna Maria is supposed to be dating uh, Daniel's brother,
1: Clint,
2: um, but the two of them are traveling together. They're heading... Um, to a, a beach house that they had rented. Um, you know, they were young and struggling a little bit financially. They had uh, run out of money. Gotten, apparently the electricity had gotten turned off, so they'd, they'd gone back um, uh, home, gotten some money together, um, and then were heading back from, uh, from their home back towards uh, Virginia Beach. And they are driving on Interstate 64 on uh, – um, act- they actually went missing uh, on Labor Day weekend. So it's
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, se- September when they go missing, and they vanish on the way to Virginia Beach. Now, there's some odd things about this. Um, the reason I referenced the October date is – my apologies – that's the date their bodies are found. So they go missing on September 5th. Their bodies are found six weeks later. Um, now, there's some odd things about this. Um, they're they're heading. Uh, I'm trying to picture this. They're heading eastbound um, uh, on the uh, Route 64. Yeah. The he's got this sort of beat up 1972 Chevy Nova. Um, the car is found. On the westbound uh, side of the road, in other words, in the wrong direction um, from, from their direction of travel. So there are two mm-hmm. rest stops, They're, you know, big, fairly nice rest stops. Um, if they were stopping on the way to the beach, they should have stopped uh, in the, in their direction of travel. But Chevy's found on the other side of the divided highway, and there's there's a kind of a mirror. Uh, rest stop on the other side of the highway. So, first of all, the car is headed in the wrong direction. In the wrong direction, yeah. The bodies are found um, about a mile or so away off an exit in kind of a rural area. They're on a a logging road. Uh, And um, so, to get there, they, they would have had to have driven, or the perpetrator would have had to have driven them to the next exit, taken that exit, driven down kind of a state highway, turns into a bit of a country road, and then taken a right turn onto an old logging road. And oh, wow.
0: Just to let you know, I didn't to interrupt, but we just hit about the halfway mark to the show just to great. give you a time check, okay?
2: Okay. Just, yeah. just, and so wrapping that up, they're they're found six weeks later by Hunter's in an area mm-hmm. that was design- that was owned by a hunt club, uh, under a blanket, lying side by side. Um, and unfortunately, because six weeks had gone by um, and because it was very wet and very hot during that time frame, the bodies actually were in a very advanced state of decomposition. They had a difficult time wow. even figuring out how they'd been killed, but um, it appears that they were stabbed. Um so, now, I'm not just, sure uh, if
0: it helps the clause to say that these were couples or not. What's your opinion of that? Because it doesn't sound accurate except for Kathy. Yeah.
2: Well, it you know, it's funny. You know, as I said, you, you, one thing investigators have taught me is, you know, you look for patterns. You know, so, um, you know, obviously they look for, you know, how were they killed, Um uh, where you know where did these day, where did this happen? But one of the standouts is when you look at them. Even though we often say first couple, second couple, et cetera, the truth is only Kathy and Becky are really a, a, a stable couple. You've got
0: yeah, uh, wow. you
2: David Nobling and Robin Edwards just met that day. Uh, Cassandra Haley and, and Keith Call are on a first date, and then finally Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer. You know they were young, and and you know relationships can be a bit fluid. But she's supposed to be going out with his brother, not with Daniel. So right, I, I think I think there's something there. A couple of other quick patterns. Three of the four crimes are in the fall. Um, mm-hmm. uh, almost in that back to school time frame from right um, right after Labor Day uh, to October 10th or so. Um, and uh, two, of the, two of the four crimes happen on three-day weekends. Um, I I'm not saying that's significant, but two of the, two of the four crimes ha- happen yeah. on ho- holiday weekends. Now, mm-hmm. there's nothing, the experts tell me at this point, there's nothing in the forensics that links these four crimes. In other words, it's just the basic circumstances of the murder. So, in other words, real quickly, it's couples, cars, parking kind of areas, mm-hmm. uh, love, lovers' lane, to, You know, to use short shorthand. Um, right. And and as far as they can tell, in terms of what they have, there there appears to be no robbery. So there's money in several examples in wallets. There's no robbery. There's no sexual assault. There's limited sign of struggle. Um, And there's a sense almost from the beginning that they they almost feel like a traffic stop. In other words, you have to picture yourself now, and I have to picture myself as a younger man now, uh, stopping with uh, your significant other, boyfriend, girlfriend, what have you, and kissing in cars, there's almost a sense that, they, they were approached by someone, and right from the very beginning, one of the things the FBI said to my family, and I'm talking about within 48 or so hours of their bodies being discovered, there's almost a sense that they were approached by an authority figure, and I remember when the FBI said that to my family at my parents' dining room up in Massachusetts, We all stopped them. We said, "What's an authority figure?" We didn't know what they meant. And what they mean is a police officer, a park ranger, a a county these county sheriffs, deputy sheriffs. uh, They have state uh, state police. I usually call them state troopers because that's what we call them up in Massachusetts. Right. So you've got these 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 but folks that drive cop cars, you know. And if you picture yourself stopped in a car. and maybe listening to music, and maybe fooling around or whatever, and or or or, or maybe just stopped, and then uh, somebody rolls up on you, and presents as a law enforcement figure. Remember, now we could be talking about someone that it isn't any of those things.
0: Right, like someone that's believe. impersonating, impersonating. Exactly. That, right? Well,
2: yeah,
0: that's interesting theory because again, the the other quote couples are straight and cat. Kathy and Becky are gay, but I mean, I so I don't think you can say, oh, one's a hate crime and one isn't. But
1: there's so right. many permutations.
0: Why don't we? Wait, why don't we um, move to this one second, West Donna? And, I,
1: and, oh, one second, well, I I just had this thought come through yeah. as Bill was talking about, you know, the timing of this, that you know, your right. three day weekends and and holidays and the area, you know, close to Virginia Beach, Norfolk, that area probably considered a vacation area, a transient area, which, you know, I'm familiar with living in Myrtle Beach. It's very transient, and all the criminals like to hang out here. Um, but, but again, looking at the some of the theories on the Long Island serial killer, they one of the theories is that it is someone who does not live in the area but comes to the area. And being that these right. crimes were committed a year apart or, you know, one each year, it, it's it's not incredible to think that this could possibly be someone from totally out of the area. Um, and I'm sure, you know, FBI has that figured out, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, we, that's a, we've, like talked, good... we've talked about that, you know, on the Long Island serial killing. Again, you know, I'm just sort of, uh, I follow the case I'm off sorry. and on, but that, that case appears to... Uh, happen in season if you know what I mean that that the, they're saying that whoever that, that killer is seems to be um, committing his I guess I should say or her although we're likely talking him uh, during during the high season this um, almost feels like um, shoulder season to me in other words uh, you may be onto something Delilah but the I think as we head into the fall, it, it, that area would shift from a, the beach focus, if you will, to a little bit more of, um, you know, back to school. Although those historic areas are busy year-round, and certainly that's a beautiful time of year uh, in in that, what they call the peninsula area, that this this Norfolk Williamsburg uh, area where these for double homicides took place. Uh, it, it's a it's a beautiful area, and fall is a gorgeous time of year, so that tourism continues um, well Through into the, the
0: fall. fall. Yeah, criminals don't want to kill in the in the in the in the height of winter time or whatever it is. It's too cold or whatever. I mean, so it, it, it kind of make it makes sense that it would be within that time frame. And Bill, I know you have some connections with Connecticut. Kind of reminds me of the Merritt Parkway. You familiar yes. with that? I mean, very it just much. sounds very much like that. I was just wondering too, as a as an aside, why no no lights whatsoever? Have they put any lights
2: in? No, it was designed. It was designed by the National Park Service. Yeah, to, but you know, to look like one of these old fashioned um, uh, old fashioned highways. And actually, the Merritt's a good example. Now on the Merritt, mm-hmm. it's a little. It's a little faster. In other words, having driven the merit any number of times. You know, you can go 55 or 60 miles an hour, maybe faster, although you're bumping up against the speed limit. The parkway is designed, 45 miles an hour is the maximum speed. They're actually really big, especially during the day, uh, with pulling people over um, and and writing them up or telling them to slow down. Um, But it's funny, there isn't a lot... On the Parkway, in other words, it's these be- it's this beautiful historic sites, most mm-hmm. of which are closed at most of which are closed at night, and except for you know like the visitor centers, uh, there's a handful of them. Uh, you know there is there isn't much there. There there are some farms and some uh, older structures wow. which they permit they permitted it to you know uh, remain. I don't think it lends itself to adding a lot of street lights and that sort of thing. After the murders, it sounds they, they a lot like
1: things. it sounds a lot like the Blue Ridge Parkway where it's it's just a very small two-lane road that goes the top of the Appalachian Mountains. There's no lights, there's nothing and Ooh. very very isolated during the night. I wouldn't do it, but <laughs> the daytime it's a beautiful place to be. But again, it's only 45 miles an hour and I think it's also controlled by the National Park Service as well. Wow. So there's
0: those parallels there, the Park Service places, because they want it to be pristine and historic and, you know, dense dense trees and all that. Very spooky. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Bill, can we, can we go to one of our main uh, topics that we discussed in terms of you wanted to address um, how does a crime go 30 years without being solved?
2: Well, First of all, you know, as the crime unfolded, first of all, I think one of the things that happened was you had multiple jurisdictions right away. In other words, the first case took place on the Parkway, so the lead agency um, is the National Park Service, and they do have in what they call investigative rangers and the FBI because it's federal property. The second yeah. crime happened happens down at the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. Then that's uh, that that's on. Uh, in the Isle of Wight County, very pretty old-fashioned names, and the Virginia State Police Service are the responsible agency. Then the third crime, you're back to uh, the Colonial Parkway. That's the one where the couple disappears, Cassandra Haley and Keith Call. And then the fourth crime happens up in New Kent County, and believe it or not, at that time, New Kent County didn't even really have a police force. They were overseeing by the Virginia State Police, and on top of everything else, that's a different Virginia State Police office, investigative office, than the Ragged Island case. So you've got, o- over the course of the almost three years exactly, you've got, you've got um, three different agencies, two different um, Virginia State Police offices, and so there was a real lack of coordination, and it's not till we get to probably the third case, as I understand it, for folks that lived in Virginia, that they began to realize, oh wait a minute, there's a, there's a pattern that's beginning to emerge here, which is, you know, in a relatively small, you know, area, we're having couple after couple after couple murdered or disappear. So I don't think it's until eighty eight that they realize we 've got a problem here, and then I think there was a distinct lack of coordination between agencies, certainly by eighty nine when the of the apparent last uh, double homicide takes place, there is significantly more coordination between National Park Service, Virginia State Police, county law enforcement, and Virginia state police but I have to be honest here, and I tend to be pretty direct. I have been told dozens and dozens of times there was also a significant amount of friction between law enforcement. I was just going
0: to ask doctors. you was there infighting and lack of
2: cooperation? Yes, there was. You know, you had competing theories. Some of the investigators thought the crimes were related, others did not. Um, they didn't get along very well. There were arguments. I, I, look, I talk to people that were in the room, there were arguments, there were, you know, this is my case, this is your case, you stay out of my jurisdiction, I'll stay out of yours kind of thing. And really until we get to Mm 9-11, does it it really shake up law enforcement and get them to realize, whoa, we need to work together in all things, um, not just terrorism and, you know, these kind of jurisdictional fights, can't go on, but you know by 1990 or so, they were at least sharing information uh, and discussing whether or not they thought they had a serial killer um, on their hands, which they probably did. Um, but it's one of those things where I think there was, on some level, there was kind of a slow creeping realization that. Um, uh, you know, there was something going on. And this is one thing I want to point out. Killers move around very easily. We've got this wonderful, wonderful highway system, and you can drive from one town to another. And I think smart, uh, methodical killers, and I think that's what we're talking about here with uh, the Colonial Parkway case, they move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and one of, one of our areas of weakness, I'm talking about it, are us as a country now, is because we have multiple jurisdictions, and I'm talking about thousands of jurisdictions across the country, um, and a real lack of information sharing, killers can move from one town or one county with no effort whatsoever, just, it's a matter of just getting in the car and driving, and they can take advantage of this. So something, some, a terrible thing happens in this town, and then one town or one county over, they might not even be aware of the details of something similar that's taken place, um, whether it's you know, six months or a year later, after the first case is out of the news. And then you know, the, the, the killer just moves around from place to place, whether they're going interstate, or whether they're just going mm-hmm. from one county to another, but I think one to answer your question, I think one of the reasons why the Colonial Parkway uh, case went unsolved is because you've got you've got two major jurisdictions, FBI and Virginia State Police, and then two different Virginia State Police offices all investigating what apparently may have been the work of the same killer or killers. Wow!
0: Uh, yeah. It's just um, overwhelming in terms of trying to keep track of things, and I, I think if anything good did come out of 9 eleven like you just made the point that perhaps people have said we have to put our differences aside and work together, and that that is you know that is so true uh, um, with with respect to um, the cooperation and what what has happened in the last seven years i know that families are very frustrated in terms of being able to uh being kept abreast of information and are there barriers now because perhaps because of terrorism and 911 with whether you have experienced it or other people can you can you address that a little bit because i think that was a very good point to be made how do we get attention to our cases bill these cases
2: are others. Well, I think that I know people love police procedurals, and I watch them too from time to time, <laughs> and they are very entertaining. And, of course, you notice they wrap up the cases all within the within the allotted within an hour. hour. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I'm here to tell you that isn't the way it, it, it necessarily is in real life. Uh, one of the worst things that came out of 9-11 from the perspective of the uh, families of victims of violent crime, and people need to understand this. The FBI has essentially been redeployed as an anti-terrorism agency. I'm not questioning that decision, and I understand. You know, uh, I lost friends on 9/11. We lived in New York then, uh, so I, I, and I recognize what a terrible event that was and how we've had to work hard as a country to avoid having, you know, similar large scale terrorist attacks. But unfortunately the FBI has largely been redeployed as an anti-terrorism agency. So violent crime, if you go to the FBI's website and you look at their mission statement, which is, you know, mm-hmm. what they're here here to do, violent crime is all the way down at the bottom. It's number eight of 10 things that they say, uh, they're committed to do and actually if you look at 9 and 10 they're really more administrative. So of the, 8 of
0: 10 oh my god. It's number
2: <laughs> it gets worse. It's number 8 of 10 and number 9 and number 10 are mostly about information sharing. So oh. violent crime is as violent crime is actually the lowest priority of all at the Federal Bureau of Investigation and their budgets have been slashed for violent crime so that Um, they really don't have enough money to do the job that they need to do regarding violent crime. Further, cold cases, and our case now, 30 years old, is considered a cold case, which I understand. I'm not disputing that. But cold cases are given the lowest priority of all. So, for example, when we ask that, uh, investigators ask that uh, uh, particular items be tested for, for the latest advances in forensics at the Quantico lab. We are given the absolute lowest priority. Now, again, I don't mean to make it sound to your listeners like I've lost my perspective. Terrible things happen every single day. We had that terrible attack uh, uh, down in, I guess that must have been Fort Lauderdale yesterday. Fort Lauderdale, uh, In yeah. Florida right with the shooting at the at the airport a, a terrible terrible event i understand that and and there are going to be bad things that will happen today and obviously anytime people are at risk you know if you're talking about a kidnapping or or you know a, 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 a you know a murder that happens uh, tomorrow i understand that nothing's going to bring back the young people from the colonial parkway murders but it is incredible incredibly frustrating to be constantly reminded, oh, you're a cold case, get back all the way back to, in, in the back of the line. And as I've said, starting to square gonna, one, yeah. Yeah, you're going to be hard pressed to find too many families that have been standing in this line longer than, uh, than, than our families have. So mm-hmm. it, what happens is because new events take place, we feel like we're standing in line very patiently and respectfully waiting in line for what forensics testing or uh, you know the time FBI agents time or what have you. And then we constantly feel like we're being told, Oh no, go back go back to the back of the line. And I'm going right. you never over. You never get, and over and you over, never get over to the again. front
0: of the line. And and right, what are we to do? I'm thinking that maybe each town, uh, regional, state jurisdiction has to open up their cold case units. But, for example, I just learned a couple days ago that we had two very good, very productive cold case units in Connecticut, one in southeastern Connecticut, one with the state police, and they've both been shut down because of cuts. So what my question, and you know what it is, what do families that are coming up and those that are standing in line – Bill,
2: what do we do? Well, I think we as a people, and I'm talking about everybody here, and right. hopefully most people will never have to experience, you know, the kind of losses that, that we have, you and I and others have. You know, this is the club that no one wants to join, and I understand it. But for us as a people, as a society, I'll be very frank here. We are not spending enough money on law enforcement. We need to spend more money. We need to allocate more funds. Um, So while we're talking about building walls between here and Mexico, there's a bad use of tax dollars. And you know something? I think solving homicides um, and and saving lives is is a much better use because you want to talk about real threats versus imagined threats. Let me give you an idea. The clearance rate for murders, despite all the things we watch on TV is 64%. That means if you lose a loved one, there's a one in three chance you are never going to know who killed your mother, father, sister, brother, boyfriend, girlfriend, what have you. One in three. And right now, since 1980, there are 215,000 homicides that have been committed in the United States that remain unsolved. That means that over 200,000 families are likely never going to know who killed their loved ones. Um, And there are 14,000 homicides, over 14,000, even though the homicide rate is down. There are 14,000 plus homicides committed each year in the United States. The truth is investigating homicides and 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 rapes and other violent crimes is a lot of work. It requires a lot of talented investigators and a lot of time. But one of the things that I've learned uh, from the work that we've done is if your your loved one's murder or missing person case, again, I'm talking about very serious uh, crimes here, if it's not solved within 48 to 72 hours of the time it's reported, the chances of it ever being solved literally go off a cliff and you could end up um, back in that group of one and three uh, families that will never know who, who killed their, their family member. And right, so
0: waiting in as, line. As,
2: as much mm-hmm. as we enjoy the entertainment presentation of uh, uh, pres- police procedurals that show the FBI and everybody else, you know, solving these cases, The truth is there's a really good chance if if lightning strikes and this kind of unfortunate violence touches your family, there's a really good chance that you will never know what happened. And I have to tell you, as someone who's living this, this is not a good feeling to be forced to walk through the rest of your life not even knowing who killed your loved one or why or and then it, without even ever moving into, um, you know, seeking appropriate justice. Right.
0: Well, I agree with you, and I, I know that, and I, we try, especially those of us that work closely with nonprofits like the Q Center and others, and those organizations can fill in the gap to help tremendously. There have been those that after many years have been solved, but we can't always Say that it will never be solved because we have to give families a sense of hope. I think that delicate line between a sense of reality and giving families a sense of hope. Always looking to see what we can do, and it's this is just tremendously complicated. And we've we've only touched the the surface of this bill. There's so many more things that we wanted to, to get to. We've only got two minutes remaining unfortunately, but we will have you and other family members back. We're going to plan on this, right? Um, I would want to know at this venture, what would you like to leave our audience with as a message right now until we, I think we're going to plan a series because this is this is such tremendously important information, especially for other family members to share as well. What would you like to leave us with at this, at this point? And how can people get in touch with you as well, in terms of what well, you're you're sharing?
2: Well, thank you. Well, first of all, I really appreciate you know you and Delilah putting the show together, and it really it, it makes a tremendous difference. It's great to talk about this stuff, and I hope that when we talk next, we can get into a little bit more about um, lessons that we've learned and things that yeah. might be helpful for other people that might. Uh, you know have friends or family that are victims of, of violent crime if people are interested in learning more about the colonial parkway murders a- actually if you google colonial parkway murders you'll find a tremendous number of, of uh, articles uh, that'll come that'll come up actually blaine pardot who's a very well respected uh true crime writer uh he and his adult daughter victoria hester are working on a on a book on the Colonial Parkway murders, which I think is going to be outstanding. They're both very uh, fine writers and and great people. They're doing some fantastic research. But uh, one thing I recommend is actually the Wikipedia page. I'm not always a big fan of Wikipedia, but the Wikipedia page uh, on the Colonial Parkway um, case, I I personally try to make certain everything is accurate and up-to-date. And that actually is a great place to start. And at the if you read that summary of the case, it has, at the bottom, it has dozens of links to some absolutely terrific um, stories, uh, television stories, um, uh, and, but very, very good in-depth stories. We had a fantastic series of articles that ran just a couple of months ago on the 30th anniversary of the Colonial Parkway murders. And so those are all linked at the bottom of the Wikipedia page. That's a great way if someone wants to learn a little bit more about the circumstances of this case. Yeah,
0: between um, now and the time we schedule the next show, I think that that, that would be tremendous. So, um, again, we want to thank you so very much for coming on. We look forward to um being able to present more information in in the future, Bill. Uh do you have any parting thoughts?
1: Well, I, I just so much for appearing with us on the show. I think the information has been totally invaluable. Um mm-hmm. and I think too, in speaking about all of the jurisdictional problems that we have, it goes back to one of my worst pet peeves is we're so reactive when it comes to crime instead of being proactive i think if we would spend the money to have different types of programs in place then we wouldn't have to wait 30 years to find out what happened
0: oh yeah that absolutely i agree with you we need to especially in this day and age but you know we're we we can put the ideas out there for presentation and help to educate and that's what we're trying to do in our corner of the world and I'm very proud of this show so thank you Delilah for saying that thank you Bill we will be in touch very soon um, so spread the word that this series will continue um, everyone have a good weekend and we'll be signing off for this edition of Shattered Wives thanks Bill thank you so much talk to you soon